0: Salmo 44, versículo 1 al 7. Oh Dios, hemos oído con nuestros oídos, y nuestros padres nos han contado que Tú hiciste en sus días en aquellos tiempos pasados. Con Tu propia mano echaste fuera a los paganos, castigaste a las naciones y estableciste allí a nuestros padres. Pues no fue su brazo ni su espada lo que les dio la victoria, Ellos no conquistaron la tierra, fue tu poder y tu fuerza, fue el resplandor de tu presencia, porque tú los amabas. Mi Rey, mi Dios, tú dices las victorias a tu pueblo, por ti vencimos a nuestros enemigos, en tu nombre aplastamos a los que nos atacaban, porque no confía yo en mi arco, ni mi espada podría darme la victoria. Fuiste tú que nos hizo vencer a nuestros enemigos, que puso en ridículo a los que odian. Odiaban. A los que nos odiaban, perdón. Ahora vamos a Salmo 74. Salmo 74 es el Salmo que es de no del rey David. Es de la familia de Coro, los cantadores. En Salmo 74, versículo 12 a 23, nos dice... Desde tiempos antiguos tú eres mi rey. Tú, oh Dios, alcanzaste muchas victorias en medio de la tierra. Tú dividiste el mar con tu poder. Lo rompiste la cabeza a los monstruos del mar... Aplastaste la cabeza del monstruo Leviatán y lo diste por comida a las fieras del desierto. Tú hiciste brotar fuentes y ríos y secaste los ríos inagotables. Tuyos son el día y la noche. Tú afirmaste la luna y el sol. Tú marcaste los límites del mundo. Tú hiciste el verano y el invierno. Ten en cuenta, Señor, que el enemigo te ofende. Y que gente necia hable mal de ti. No te olvides tanto de nosotros. Somos débiles como tortolas. (ríe) Tortolas. No nos entregues a las fieras. Acuérdate de tu alancia. Porque el país está lleno de violencia. Hasta el último rincón. No dejes que se humille al oprimido. Haz que te alaben el pobre y el humilde. Levántate, oh Dios, defiende tu causa. Recuerda que los necios te ofenden sin cesar. No olvides los gritos de tus enemigos, el creciente clamor de los rebeldes. Ahora nos vamos a Salmos 104. Gracias. Alabanzas al Creador. Bendecir al Señor con toda mi alma. Bendeciré al Señor con toda mi alma. Ok, sería bueno si repitan atrás de mí. Ahí vamos. Bendiciré al Señor con toda mi alma. Cuán gran eres, Señor y Dios mío. Te has vestido de gloria y esplendor. Te has envuelto en un manto de luz. Tú extendiste el cielo como un velo. Tú afirmaste sobre el agua los pilares de tu casa allí en lo alto, Convirtes las nubes en tu carro, viajas sobre las alas del viento. Los vientos son tus mansejeros y las llamas de fuego tus servidores. Pusiste la tierra sobre sus bases para que nunca se mueva de su lugar. El mar profundo cubría la tierra como si fuera un vestido. El agua cubría las montañas pero tú la resprendiste y se fue. Huyó de prisa al escuchar tu voz de trueno, subiendo a los montes y bajando a los valles. Se fue al lugar que le habías señalado, al límite que le ordenases no cruzar para que no volviera a cubrir la tierra. Tú envías el agua de los manantiales a los ríos que corren por las montañas. De esa agua beben los animales salvajes. Con ella apagan su sed los asnos del monte. A la orilla de los ríos anidan las aves del cielo. Ahí cantan entre las ramas de los árboles. Tú eres quien riega los montes de de tu casa, allá en lo alto. Con los torrentes del cielo satisfaces a la tierra. Haces crecer los pastos para los animales y las plantas que el hombre cultiva. Para sacar su pan de la tierra. El pan que le da fuerzas. Y el vino que alegra su vida. Y hace brillar su cara más que el aceite. Sacian su sed los árboles. Los cedros del libano que el Señor plantó. En ellos anidan las aves más pequeñas y en los pinos viven las cigüeñas. Los montes altos son para las cabras y en las peñas se esconden los tejones y cis es la luna para medir el tiempo. El sol sabe cuándo debe ocultarse. Vienes el manto oscuro de la noche y entonces salen los animales del bosque. Los leones rueguen por la víctima. Los leones rueguen por la víctima. Piden que Dios les dé su comida. Pero al salir el sol se van y se acuestan en sus cuevas. Entonces sale el hombre a su labor y trabaja hasta la noche. Cuántas cosas has hecho, Señor, todas las hiciste con sabiduría. La tierra está llena de todo lo que has creado. Allí está el mar ancho y extenso, donde abundan incontables animales grandes y pequeños. Allí navegan los barcos y allí está el leviatán, el monstruo que hiciste para jugar con él. Todos ellos esperan de ti que les des sus comidas en su tiempo. Tú les das y ellos recogen. Abres la mano y se llenan de lo mejor. Si escondes tu rostro, se espantan. Si les quitas el aliento, mueren y vuelven a ser polvo. Pero si envidias tu aliento de vida, son creados. Y así renuevas el aspecto de la tierra. La gloria del Señor es eterna. El Señor se alegra en su creación. La gloria del Señor es eterna. El Señor se alegra en su creación. La tierra tiembla cuando Él la mira. Echan humo los montes cuando Él los toca. Mientras yo exista y tenga vida, cantaré himnos al Señor mi Dios. Quiera el Señor agradarse de mis pensamientos, pues solo en Él encuentro mi alegría. Que quiera el Señor agradarse de mis pensamientos. Por solo en Él encuentro mi alegría. Que desaparezcan de la tierra los pecadores. Que dejen de existir los malvados. Bendeciré al Señor con toda mi alma. Aleluya. Salmos 104 134. Ahí vamos que el Señor te bendiga. Cánticos de las subidas. Vamos, siervos del Señor. Bendigan al Señor todos ustedes que están en su templo por las noches. Eleven sus manos al santuario. Y bendigan al Señor, que el Señor, Creador del cielo y de la tierra, te bendiga desde el monte Sion. Ahora hay que mirar para el oeste, para Jerusalén y decir, bendigan al Señor que está en el monte y las bendiciones vienen del Señor por todos lados. Bendicimos a Jerusalén, que el Señor los ayude. En el nombre de Cristo Jesús, gracias por venir al estudio hoy, que Dios los ampare. Vamos a orar un Padre Nuestro, por favor. Padre Nuestro que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. Véngase tu reino, hágase tu voluntad, aquí en la tierra como en el cielo... El pan nuestro de cada día, dándolos hoy. Y perdónanos por nuestros pecados, así como nosotros perdonamos a nuestros pecadores. Y no nos dejes caer entre malas tentaciones, mas líbranos y guárdanos de todo el mal. Porque tuyo es el reino, el poder y la gloria para siempre, siempre, Señor. Amén. Gracias por llegar. Sigan un buen día.
1: My name is Jean, and I am a grateful alcoholic.
2: Um,
1: I want to thank Mike Mike and Kathy first for asking me to do this. I want to thank your group for opening uh, this room to me and to people like me, you know, who need a place to go. Uh, This is a real experience; it it truly is. I can't say that I've I've had the privilege of of speaking at some uh, state conventions, and I've had the privilege of speaking at some local conferences. But I can't honestly tell you I've been asked to do this for four weeks. So the fact that I am terrified has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Um, Every time I get ready to speak, I, uh, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And I get terrible butterflies right here. And a wonderful lady by the name of Geraldine Delaney told me a long, long time ago, That the day that I don't feel like I'm going to throw up and the day that I don't have the butterflies in my stomach is the day I have no right to get behind a podium because I have once again become the god in my life. And then, of course, I try to become the god in your life and anybody else's life who happens to walk by me. Denise, I want to thank you for sharing. That was just really cool. Um, I really did identify. And it's very difficult to get across a really important point in a short period of time, and you did a marvelous job. You really did. I'll trade. Now you
2: can come here. I'll go down there.
1: Um, as I understand it, tonight I'm going to talk about my experience, strength, and hope. I'm going to tell you about my story and how I got here. And hopefully somewhere along the line when I get into my early recovery, uh, you will uh, find how I relate to steps one and two and how important they are in my life, and they're important in my life on a daily basis. Um, I still find every morning when I wake up that I, I need to do one, two, and three. I need to refer to, I need to bring it to my attention before I even move, you know? Because if I forget that I'm powerless, if I forget that my life is unmanageable, if I forget that there is a God in my life who can restore me to sanity, and if I forget to turn my will and my life over to that God, I'm in deep trouble before I even move out of my bedroom. I really am. I'm in great trouble. I like to start off a certain way. It sort of gets me going and sort of uh, takes care of these things that are going around down here. And um, I'd like to tell you that there are a couple of questions that you might ask me to find out exactly where I am in my sobriety. And the first question you might ask me is, um, what is your sobriety date? And my sobriety date is May the 12th, 1983. And God willing, I live to Monday and I have every intention of doing so. I will celebrate 20 years of continuous sobriety in this program. And that is a miracle. That is a true miracle in my life. But what I've realized and only most recently, like you had these, these recollections. And I had this wonderful um, experience, I guess, is what we might call it. It's probably a spiritual experience. Where I, uh, I realized that 20 years of time had passed. But I truly have learned how to live one day at a time because I don't even realize it. I mean, honestly, I feel like I just walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was beaten, I was downtrodden, and I had no home, and I, oh, my family wasn't speaking to me, and where was I going to go, what was I going to do? One day at a time, here we are. You know, whoever got up earlier this morning has more sobriety than I do, and I overslept. I didn't get up till 7.20. So if you got up before 7.20 this morning, you've got more sobriety than this person standing here, and probably some other people in the room, too. Uh, the next question that you might want to ask me is, um, what is my home group? My home group is Seagirt Thursday Night. We meet every Thursday night at St. Mark's Church in Seagirt, corner of Crescent and 3rd. At 8 o'clock, we're an open speaker meeting. And if you're ever in the area, please come by and see us. It's a real small town, you know, Seagirt. It's 9 blocks. Uh, i got to get it right this time. It's 11 blocks north to south, nine blocks east to west. It's very difficult to get lost. You can find us. You can find us. And as far to the best of my knowledge, as of tonight anyway, I am still a member in good standing of the Higher Power Hour in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And they meet every Monday and Wednesday night, 7 o'clock at the corner of Pitt and Queen in St. Paul's Lutheran Church and they'd love to have you visit if you're ever in the Charleston area. I go every time I go back to visit. The next question you might ask me is, who is my sponsor? Um, I have two sponsors. I have one sponsor in right here in New Jersey, the same sponsor I've had since the day I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, she celebrates 33 years of sobriety this year. And, uh, very, very instrumental in my early recovery and, and in walking me through a lot of stuff that I needed to walk through. And my other sponsor, whose name is also Jean, um, lives in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, although she got sober in New Jersey, and she was uh, EAP, I think, for Prudential, I'm not sure, but that's immaterial. And she just happened to move from um, the Edison area, actually, down to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and of course, because I don't have an ego, I know she moved there at the exact moment that I needed her. And I really do believe God sent her to me. And in fact, I know God sent her to me. Uh, she's been very sick this past year, and uh, wild horses have kept me from going back, going down there to take care of her and and help her recover, because she has been so good to me, so good. What a Um, a service sponsor, Uh, not necessary for everybody. I don't think it's necessary for everybody, but for this alcoholic, it's necessary. Um, I love service work, I enjoy service work. I was very involved when I lived in South Carolina, and I still have my service sponsor from there. And if I ever have any questions regarding um, my service in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether whether I should or I shouldn't, I I usually call Patty, and Patty gives me the answer because she has the answers, and that's why I have her. And then I have, last but not least, I have this ugly Irishman. I mean, he really is. He is an ugly son of a gun. He stands about this high, and he can beat me into the ground faster than anybody I know. And I love him dearly. He is, I do, I do. He is who I call, I guess, my spiritual advisor. Um, when I really don't know, when I'm really looking for some answers that aren't sponsorship related and uh, maybe are, are life related and I just I just don't know, I, I, I call him up. And I remember the very first time I ever did that, I called him up and he said, uh, well, where's your big book? And I said, it's in the car. And he said, what's your big book doing in the car? And I said, I'm at work. You don't have a pocket edition that you carry with you? I said, no, I don't. You will have. I'm sending you one tomorrow. And I've never let it out of my pocketbook since. Because I know that he's going to say to me someday, I, "You should turn to page such and such and read it, Jean." And he usually says to me, "Read it seventy times." And I always say, "I don't want to do it seventy times." And he tells me, 70 is good. Do it, then call me back." And so far, it's worked. You know, so uh, I, I don't want. You know, I don't like to rock the boat. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, and my life seems today to be going along. Pretty well so I just sort of leave well enough alone. And the last question that you might ask me is what step are you uh, trying to live today? Most of the time today in, in my sobriety and recovery I'm somewhere around the ele- between the 11th and the 12th steps. I vacillate back and forth. I don't honestly know that I have meditation down pat Or that I even know how to do meditation. If that's what you do, um, I I know it's listening, and I know I have to be quiet, and I know that I should listen for God to speak to me. And uh, and, but you know, I can't shut my mouth long enough, or turn my brain off long enough to really have it down pat. So I do work on that, Um, and I'm in the twelfth step because I firmly believe in in giving back what has been so freely given to me. I believe that God has a purpose for me. He ain't done with me yet. When he is, he'll let me know. And I do believe that carrying the message to other alcoholics is is very, very important. You know, when I got sober, somebody was standing at that door, and they put their hand out, and they welcomed me when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's because that person was there that I returned. And they made me feel welcome. And therefore now that is my job. You know, That is my job in my home group and in other places I go to make other people feel as welcome as I've been made to feel. And so the 12th step, that's where, usually where I find my someplace in there. Of course, I still have to make a lot of amends. and I have to do a lot of other stuff too. However, when I when I was preparing for, for tonight, as, as when I'm asked to share any time, I find myself in the third step. And I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of, God, of my God as I understand God. And I'm asking him to please just allow me to get out of myself long enough to tell the truth. Because sometimes, I don't know about anybody else in this room, because I can only speak for myself. But I know for me that sometimes I want you to think it was a little more exciting and a little more glamorous and a little bit more, you know, really neat things that happened. And the honest to God's truth is, when I get into my story and what happened to me, I wish I could stay in here and I could tell you that I, I had some good times with alcohol. But the truth of the matter is when I drank, I got drunk. I blacked out. I did things I don't remember. When I came to, somebody was always mad at me. I was in the doghouse and nobody was speaking to me. You know, and that and that is not fun, you know. So I honestly can't say that I ever had any really. I mean, I don't even remember in high school having really good times. I remember setting out to have good times, that I remember, you know, I set out with every good intention, but usually I was there not very long at whatever party we were at and I had had my fill and I was passed out in some bed somewhere and I missed the whole party. And that's the way alcohol affected me in the very beginning. Um, I did not get here because I ate too many strawberries. I'm sure if somebody told me if I ate strawberries, I would die, I wouldn't have eaten strawberries. Many times I heard how alcohol would kill and I still continued to drink alcohol. Um, I grew up uh, a little bit north, I guess, of here. I grew up in that nice little town called Mountain Lakes. I grew up in the 50s because I'm not very young chronologically, (laughs) emotionally is another whole story about where my head is. And um, my father was an affluent attorney. Uh, My mother was a stay-at-home mom. And we lived in a big house on the lake. And materially, we had just about everything anybody would ever want. I grew up with twin brothers who were three years younger than I. And both, and my father was a periodic, and my mother was a daily drunk. And I honestly do cannot tell you who took care of me when I was little. I, I can't tell you because I don't know. Obviously somebody did because I'm here. But I do know that as those boys grew older, and my parents had their hangovers, or my mother, who ne- I never saw my mother before noon to the day she died. I don't ever remember seeing her before noon. And then it was, but it was my job to take care of those kids. It was my job to keep them quiet so that they wouldn't wake my parents, you know, because if my parents were awake and they had hangovers and they weren't feeling well, you just never knew who was gonna get it. I mean, you just never knew. Um, I grew up in a house with a lot of anger. Rage and screaming and hollering and yelling, and I spent a lot of time hiding in my room with a blanket over my head. And I heard the door slam, and I wonder who left this time and were they coming back? Um, now my brothers remember it differently, and I believe the reason that they that they. Remember it differently is that what by the time they were 12. They were in my mother's way and they were sent away to prep school never to return again I mean, They went to prep school and they went to summer camp and they went to college so you know Their recollections of those years are a lot different than mine. If you sit all three of us down in a room We all have a different idea of what happened in that house. Um, I Never brought people to my house I couldn't bring people to my house because I never knew what was going to happen. I never knew who was going to be there. What what it was going to be like. So you just didn't. so I left my house very early in the morning as a teenager and I would come home as late as possible around dinner time just to avoid being around it. When I was in high school, and it's been said many times, and I, I just repeat the things that I've heard, when I was in high school, I felt like I was on the outside looking in. I just, didn't, I just didn't fit. I wondered why I, it was real, what was wrong with me? Why couldn't I have what they had? You know, why didn't I have as many friends? Why couldn't I do this? Well, I, among other things, I couldn't participate because I couldn't reciprocate know, and if you can't do that, you sort of learn to isolate. And I had a couple of girlfriends, but you know, I still had that, even in the very beginning of that, putting that wall up and not allowing you to get in, because if you really knew who I was, then you wouldn't like me, and you would leave. I had my first drink, my first drunk, my first blackout when I was 15 years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. I went with my boyfriend into New York City, a whole, there was a gang of us went in. And we went in, and, and then those, I don't know if they're, I haven't been in the city in so long, so I couldn't tell you if this still even exists, but they had a bunch of these jazz bars, and you went down these stairs, and down below, and it was smoky, and the lights were low, and the jazz was fabulous. I mean, it was just wonderful. And then everybody was ordering drinks, and I don't know if this is the first drink I had, but it's the first one I remember. And they were ordering drinks, and I honestly didn't know what to order, but somebody ordered a 7 and 7, and that sounded good to me, so I ordered 7 and 7. And as I stand here tonight, I can tell you that as I took that sip, I still remember the burning sensation as it went right down my throat, it just went right down there. And boy, it got down, and miracles happened. Absolute miracles. All of a sudden, I didn't Feel less than you know all of a sudden I thought, well, maybe there was a possibility all of a sudden I could dance and I could talk you know? and what I know about that night is I went to New York with this boyfriend with some money and whatever and when I when I got home, well actually he led me up the stairs and plopped me in my threw me in my bed, you know because I couldn't walk too well. And I woke up the next morning and I had no money and I didn't know what had happened to the money and I found out later I had bought drinks for everybody. And that was to be, yeah. And that was to become a pattern, you know. That was to become a pattern and that was what I did. So you would like me, you know, I bought the booze. And I graduated from high school, I went to college. I went to college with one idea. I was going to get my MRS. And I met my first husband within 10 days after I got to college. And three years later, I got my MRS. And um, I married an only child who had no idea how to share at all in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I married a, a man who's, uh, well, nobody would have ever been good enough for him. And his mother really didn't like me out uh, too much, you know. Um, I married a man whose whose whole sole purpose, it seemed to me, as the years went on, and lo- his sole purpose in life was to climb the corporate ladder. And as he climbed that corporate ladder, it became more and more successful. And I stayed home, and I had two beautiful children, and I kept that house, and I did all of the things that you know, a young corporate wife is supposed to do. And every time he got a, a promotion, we moved. And every time we moved, it was always very interesting to me that my children went to school and had their friends. And my husband had his business acquaintances, and I sat in the new house. And my phone didn't ring. And then I had to do the one thing that I really hated to do. I had to put myself out. And how do you do that? and I had a love affair. Uh, I can't honestly tell you that alcohol was a problem in in our home in the the early years, you know, but what I do know is when I drank, I got drunk. I passed out and I came to and somebody was mad. And of course I always said I'm never going to do that again because I felt so awful. And the next time the opportunity arose, Uh, we moved all around the country, and as we moved around the country, my uh, alcoholism progressed. My progression was very, very slow in the beginning. It really was very slow. I think I was in my mid-30s, must have been, when I uh, landed in, uh, outside of San Francisco, California in a little tiny town called Moraga. My husband at that point in time traveled probably four out of seven nights, you know, four out of seven days a week. So he would pack and he'd get on the plane and he would go. My children would go to school. And, and, um, and I, got, I did get very involved. I got very involved in bridge clubs, and, and our bridge clubs would start our wine drinking about 11, you know. And that was okay, you know. Because, see, if you were a drunk, you would drink scotch or something. But wine was okay. Wine was just fine. And it was in California that I started drinking wine very early in the morning. Because all of a sudden, when I woke up, I needed the wine. okay to me that was okay. I uh, we moved to New Canaan, uh, Connecticut in the uh, mid 70s. My children were now in high school. My husband was really up that corporate ladder. He's traveling the world now and he's and I'm living on six, three acres of land in a 20some odd room house with a brook that's going through the front yard, with an old English sheepdog, and the family station wagon. And I'm miserable. I'm absolutely miserable. And it was during this uh, time, in the mid-70s, my uh, mother and father had retired to Florida. My dad is still this periodic. My mother is a drunk, and my mother is diagnosed with massive throat cancer. So, um, I started to commute back and forth to Florida to take care of my mom and uh, I was sneaking drinks. I remember doing that, but I remember going to that hospital and um uh, over the years uh you know she was my mother. she did the very best that she possibly could, and I knew that I knew she did that as i got when I got into recovery, <laughs> I knew. You know, she did the best she could. She didn't have a very good role model herself, so she didn't really know, you know, how to be a mom. And, uh, but over the years, we had developed a pretty good rapport. And of course, the more I got into my alcoholism, the easier it was. And she would always kid me, and she would say to me, you know, Mom, she would say, you know, Jean, when, uh, God forbid, if the time ever comes that I'm incapacitated, I want you to promise me that you will pull the plug. And I would say, sure, Mommy, I'll do that. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember the morning that I went to that hospital in Vero Beach, Florida, and I remember they had taken out part of her voice box. And and I remember when she um, wrote on this blackboard to pull the plug. And I couldn't do it. And that was sometime in March. Uh, 1976, and I can tell you that until May the 12th of 1983, I never dro- dro- drew another sober breath. I did not. I could not do it. I went, went back there. I got drunk. I stayed drunk. My dad called me um, six weeks or so later. He told me my mom had died, and we all went to Florida, and I, uh, I do not remember anything about it. I just don't remember. I, could, I wish I could sometimes, you know. But I don't remember, and, uh, and I stayed drunk. And about ten months later, my dad um, got remarried uh, to an old family friend, and we were all really happy for him. I'll never forget, he used to say to me after my mom died, that regardless of her alcoholism, um, he used to say to me, you know, Gene, I go to bed to nothing and I get up to nothing. And he was a very lonely man. And uh, they, he'd known this woman for years. I've known her for years. And so he got married. And he got married on February the 22nd of uh, 1977. And on February the 24th at noon, he dropped dead of a massive coronary. And, um, and I don't remember anything about his funeral. I don't remember one thing. I have the newspaper clippings. Because he was, a. a as I said, he was a... Very well known attorney in his field, and uh, and I don't remember. And I just got drunk, and I just stayed drunk, because that's the only way I knew to cope. You know, I didn't know, I had no other coping mechanisms. And um, and and life went on, sort of. You know, my mo- mother-in-law had a stroke at my house. You know, and then I ended up with my mother-in-law, and the woman never had cared for me, so. That was very difficult, you know, just trying to keep things. And my disease had progressed to such a point that I needed to drink all the time. I just needed to drink. This was no more, uh, no longer a, a, a I want to drink or it would be nice to have a drink. This was I needed a drink. And in 19, uh, whenever it was, 81, I had to stop and think. My husband moved us to uh, a beautiful home on the ocean. Because he'd worked hard and he deserved it. Of course, he forgot the fact that he moved me five blocks from uh, his parents. That my children were in college now. And, you know, nobody needed me. Who needed me? Nobody needed me. And that's exactly where my self-esteem had taken me. I mean, I had no more. I was just a, I was a hollow shell. That's all I was just doing the footwork one day after another. Uh, I had to stay sober when my husband was home on weekends. Well, I had to not drink. That doesn't mean I was sober. I had to watch it when my children came home from college. But I am now into full-blown alcoholism. And my husband is traveling the world, and my children are gone, and my parents don't need me. Nobody really needed me. And um, drinking at home got expensive. I was having a really hard time with the half gallons of doors. I had one hidden in my closet and I would drink the bar scotch. But see, I knew, because I was so paranoid, I knew that he was marking this bottle. I knew it, I knew it. In my head, I knew it. And so I would get the, this is how sick, this is, this is sick. So I would go get the bottle, the half gallon from my closet, and I would take it and I would decant it into the, the bar bottle up to where I thought the line was, but sometimes I put in too much.
2: <laughs>
1: so I had to drink it but then sometimes I drank too much. So, you know, we just, we sort of played, I mean, this game went on and on, on. And I had a bar, the Lane Yankee Clipper, which is no longer on, the, on Ocean Avenue in Seagirt, and it was exactly two doors north of my front porch. Well, now, let's see. If you have children in college and a husband who's not home and nobody who's paying attention to you, where would you go? I went to the Yankee Clipper. Sounded like a good idea. And then one thing led to another, and I became a bar drinker. I am not proud of that. I'm really not. I mean, I had, materially again, just like growing up, I had everything. It was all there. Emotionally, I had nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I became a bar drinker, and I can tell you every bar in Monmouth County and in Ocean County that opens at 6 in the morning and 7 in the morning and those that are open until 2 and 3 in the morning. And I can tell you that because I was there. And that's how I started my days. Toward the end of my act of alcoholism, I would come to. I would crawl on my hands and knees to my kitchen. I would open up underneath my sink and I would grab a half gallon of wine, white wine, And I would get a coffee mug and I'd get some ice cubes and I would, you know, put them in and I would pour the wine and I would drink it down and then I would throw it up. And I would drink it down and I would throw it up because I knew eventually it would stay down. And once it stayed down, then my shakes would stop. And if the shakes would stop, then maybe I could get a shower and put some makeup on. Because, God forbid, people should know that my insides didn't match my outsides in any way, shape, or form. Every hair had to be in place, the clothes had to be impeccable, everything had to be under control. And then I would get in my car and I would go to start to visit the bars. I'm not proud of that, I'm really not proud of that. My morals went out the window and I didn't care. I just didn't care. I had reached a point in my own alcoholism where I needed it, and I didn't care how I got it. It didn't make any difference. The consequences I never thought of. It never dawned on me what this was costing me. But that bottle of doors made every decision that I made for a lot of years, a lot of years. It was not nice, and it was not pretty. My last drunk took me to Hoboken. This is Hoboken, before Hoboken was the way it is today. I'm going back, remember, 20 years. Um, I had an unemployed house painter that I moved into my house because that seemed like the thing to do. I mean, he paid attention to me. Nobody else did, but he did, you know. And I moved him and moved him into my uh, house and my husband was in Europe and. My husband came home. And he was not happy and I didn't understand it. And that is honestly how sick I was. Today of course, I laugh about it and I and I see how ridiculous that this scene had to be. but it wasn't you know I just could not understand I mean after all, look at how he treated me. If you had my problems, you would have done the same thing. And so I took my, uh, oh, God, Bob, I hope you're listening, baby. If you're still alive, i got a friend dying of uh, whatever, some kind of cancer. And if he were in this audience right now, he'd be starting to laugh. Right now he would be starting to laugh. And I can hear him. I can just hear him in my head. Um, so I gathered up my gold in one hand, and I gathered up my furs in the other, and I stood at the bottom of the stairs of my million-dollar house on the ocean in secret with the unlimited checking account and all the credit cards and two cars in the driveway and money in my pocket, and I said, I'm not going to live like this anymore. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is, I haven't. That's the truth. That is the truth. I haven't. And I took off with my unemployed house painter, and that's about the last that I remember. Um, I know that we ended up in Hoboken. I remember a long limousine and some not so nice looking people in these black, shiny coats. <sighs> Handing me booze, hundred dollars, and a key to an apartment on Madison Avenue. Don't ask me why. I don't know. And so we went to that apartment, and then I we re- I re- went around. Hope we did something in Hope. I was in some. I was with some kill. I hear later. I was with some murderers and some hit men, and you know, some really classy people. You know, isn't that what the lady from Seagirt with the house on the ocean? Isn't that where she belongs. You know, and. um... And I know we ended up in, in one of the Brunswick's, but I don't know which one. Uh, it was at some hall some place where, where you get a job, um, you know, where, like, carpenters and painters and people go, you know. And we went to a bar there. And then I know that we ended up in a motel room on Route 9. My guess is somewhere between Howell and, and Lakewood. I'm not exactly sure where. I uh, can't tell you. Don't know, but it was a real classy joint. I want you all to know that it had no telephone, you know, so that gives you a general idea of the class of this place. And what I remember is I woke, I came to, I didn't even wake up, but I came to, and I had an empty half-gallon of Doors, and I was alone, and I had alcoholic paralysis. And I crawled on my hands and knees for two days. There was no way to get any help. I had, there were no cell phones. This room did not have a phone. I wouldn't have opened the door if I could have, you know. And that's, and that's where alcohol took me. That's where it took me. That was my bottom. And I remember being on my knees that morning and praying to this God that I truly had never left, you know. But I would always pray for for those things. God, if you will get me this, then I promise you I will whatever. And uh, and I just prayed to this God. And I just said, God, please, just help me. Get me. I know, I didn't even know where I was. I cannot tell you how I made it home to my house. I don't know. I have no recollection. I have a recollection of my husband meeting me at the front door, I have a recollection of him uh, t- uh, telling me that he had gotten me a plane ticket to send me to my brother in Nebraska, because my brother in Nebraska has his, uh, he's doctorate in, I, I don't know, child psychology or something. Anyway, he, he worked with juvenile delinquents and I was no better than a juvenile delinquent. And so he, Dan didn't know what to do with me. So he just took, sent me out there, you know. But what bothered me, what really bothered me, still bothers me today, and this is just an aside and probably has nothing to do with nothing, was, but this was an only child, you know, who never had any siblings or brothers or sisters or knew how to share. And so when he was so upset, he called his children out of college. He called his children to come home from college to help him find their mother. And I always wondered, why did he do that? I can't ask him. I wish I could. You know, I just didn't understand that. But, you know, he did what he did. He was terrified. He didn't know where I was. He had absolutely no idea. So he sent me out to my brother, Neil. And my brother, Neil, said to me, honey, you are very sick. And he said to me, um, "I really think you need to go to a rehab, and I will help you find a rehab." And I said, "Okay." And I said, "So how long do you think this will take?" And he said to me, "Well, I think it'll probably take about four months." And I said, "Well, where else was I going to go?" You know, I neglected to add that when I got on this plane to go to Nebraska, my husband handed me a letter just to tell me that he had sued me. He was suing me for divorce and that I was no longer welcome in my home. And so, in fact, it wasn't my home anymore. And so, you know, when he said this rehab in this four months, this just sounded like, well, that's a, like a four month reprieve. You know, it'll give me four months before I have to figure out what I'm doing here. And so there we were, and uh, I called home and I said, told my husband that I was ready to come back and go to rehab and whatever, and he said, that's fine. He said, Doc, I'll just let you come back because you're going to Carrier Clinic on Monday, which was the uh, 15th of May in 1983. And he said to me, um, and I said, well, how long a program is this? And he said, well, it's 28 days. And I remember turning to my brother, Neil, and saying, I'm going to rehab. It's only 28 days. I stand here tonight and I tell you that I was in rehab for four months and ten days. So see, he did know better than I did. And I did go to Carrier Clinic, and that was the very first place that I was ever introduced to the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the very first place that I ever learned that alcoholism was a disease. I didn't know that I was sick. I thought I was crazy. I really did. My behavior had become such that I really believed that I was nuts. And I found out I wasn't nuts, you know. I wasn't nuts. I was just a drunk. That's all I was, I was just a drunk, a garden variety drunk. And as I talked to people that were there during those 28 days, you know, many of them had done most of the things that I had done, some had done worse and some had done less, you know, but we were just all garden variety drunks, you know, trying to get well, that's all we were doing. It was there that I was introduced to the 12 and 12. You know, I thought they were speaking a foreign language when I first went there. I don't know about anybody else, if you came in through the doors or if you went to rehab, but trust me, to me, it was a foreign language. Well, we're going to talk about the promises today. And we got the, the big book, and we've got, you know, that blue book, and we've got, and the 12, and talking about, what the 24-hour, what are they talking about? You know, I just didn't know. But I learned, you know, because I knew this was the end of the line. For me, this was the end of the line. I had no place to go. And it was somewhere there in those first 28 days that I really believe that I got into the first step and then I accepted that I was powerless over alcohol. It took me a little bit longer to understand that my life was unmanageable. I didn't see I didn't see unmanageability. You know, how could my life be unmanageable? My children were clean, they were my house was immaculate, my laundry was done, you could eat off my floors. You could walk in my house any time of the day or night, you'd never find anything out of place, nothing lying around. Where's the unmanageability? But what I neglected to look at was cooking meals at six in the morning because that's the only time I was drawing a sober breath, half sober, and it was the only time I could get my act in gear to do it. What I forgot about was the days I sat at my kitchen table which overlooks the ocean, with a half gallon of Doors and a a big jumbo glass like this and my club soda and the doorbell would ring and I would go hide the glass in the refrigerator because I didn't want anybody to see me drinking in my own house. I mean, that's unmanageable, folks. That's crazy. You know, normal people do not do what I did. Normal people just don't. I forgot about all of these things that made my life unmanageable because I was looking at this outside nonsense and not looking right here. So eventually I understood about unmanageability. And then as I said, I really thought I was crazy. I mean, I really did. I truly, honestly believed I was nuts. And how was I got? you know... And then, so I got to this second step, and the second step told me, you know, that I, I can believe that there is a power greater than myself. Big, important words. Greater than myself. I was the power in your life, your life, my life, my kids' lives. I wanted it. You said, I want everything done my way. If you do it my way, everything will be fine. I am the power. And I had to stop being the power. And I had to turn Had to believe that this God was going to bring back some sanity into my life. And as my recovery progressed, when I was in rehab forever, you know, because I had this wonderful counselor who is a very good friend of mine today, excellent, wonderful friend of mine. She lives in Wilmington, North Carolina, right now, but she was my counselor at Carrier. Her name is Jane, and I love Jane dearly and. Jane came to me one day and, read, "Well, I guess I was there about three and a half weeks, and she said, "You know, Jean, you really would be a good idea if you considered going to Alina Lodge and I was not going to any Alina Lodge. I had heard about that woman. I had heard about her. Still allowed to smoke, but you couldn't have menthol cigarettes. And how dare she tell me (laughs) that I couldn't have menthol cigarettes? Well, you know, the long and the short of it is I decided that I would go. And it was at Alina Lodge that I had, I was stripped. I was absolutely stripped. I had a fabulous counselor, and and in fact, one of the uh, male counselors, Greg, is still up there. He was there when I walked in. He had been there about a year. He is still there. And I make him come and lead my anniversary. I go back every year to celebrate my anniversary up there, and I tell him it's a command performance. You know, he's one of the few that saw me, you know, walk in that day, miserable, miserable. I hadn't had any alcohol, you know, for whatever, 28 days or so. But, you know, I had nothing else. I didn't. I. I didn't know how to live. I just didn't know how to do it. And so they had this counselor named Cynthia. I can say it that way because my daughter's name is Cynthia, and she's Cindy when she's good, and she's Cynthia when you know, and she's Cynthia when you know she's in deep trouble. And lately, she's had a lot of Cynthia. Uh, anyway, Cynthia was a she was she was i don't even know how to describe her i i truly do not know but this woman if you got told you had to go see cynthia you started to shake before you started to walk over there and i went and i sat down in front of this woman and and one of the most important things that she ever said to me was who are you and i said in my community you know well that's who I was you know I helped restore that lighthouse where we have our Friday night meeting you know and and well and she looked me square in the eye and she said I did not ask you what you were I asked you who you were and I was stripped it was at that point that whatever part of me was carried over left. It really did. Um, not, not all of the stuff, the baggage that comes with it, but I was stripped. I was stripped naked, and, and I was ready to be rebuilt. And I would have done anything. I would have done anything, you know, anything. And so what I found out that I had been uh, in my act of alcoholism was that I had been a very selfish, very self-centered, egotistical arrogant i never thought that i had arrogance at all arrogant please arrogant you know and i and that's what i was and what i know today is that i am a very loving very giving very trusting uh, still arrogant sometimes Tuesday nights from uh, we meet for an hour. what's new and exciting, uh, because I got an awful lot from him, and he's he's been a wonderful, wonderful friend for me. Uh, My recovery has not been easy, and I need to talk about that, because so many times we come into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we really believe that we're going to quit drinking, and all of our problems are just going to disappear. Uh, That hasn't been my experience. All of my problems have not disappeared, and many times in my recovery, I've made problems for me. I really have. Uh, as I started to uh, to get that faith back and, and believe in some sanity, I started to get a little fresh and smart, and uh, sometimes think that I, that I could uh, do it myself. Probably one of the most horrendous times in my sobriety was um, I was sober about a year about a year, a little over a year. And I was living in an apartment in Brielle, and I was very fortunate that I didn't have to work at the time. My former husband took very good care of me, he really did. He loved me with all his heart and soul, But on this morning of August the 18th in 1984, about 10 minutes after 8, my telephone rang, and it was my youngest child screaming into the telephone for me to hurry up and come to see her because Daddy was dead. And my children had arisen that morning, and they found their father dead on the sofa. Uh, He was 49 years old. uh, We had started to mend our own relationship. I am so grateful that God gave that to me. I am so grateful that God gave that to me. You know, God gave me the time to, uh, to tell Him how sorry I was and to tell Him that I couldn't take it back and I couldn't make it any better. But He needed to know that, you know, I didn't do it because I wanted to. That I had this disease of alcoholism and it made me do it. But the good thing that came out of that was that my children had a sober mother. My children had a sober mother prior to this, you know I always said I would not be as bad as my mother and i mean, well, I was worse I was worse you know my mother wasn't a town tramp to my knowledge, and I know I was you know and that is not my kids used to come looking for me in the bars when their father would call from wherever and and you know and they'd lie for me if they were okay with me. If they were mad at me, they'd, you know, as well as she's down there, we'll go get her, you know? And I mean, that's a horrible way for kids to grow up. It's just a horrible way. And, but they had this sober mother who was able to walk with them and talk with them and use what little experience I had at that moment to help them through that. And my girls and I are just like this today, you know, well, Wendy and I are a little this right now, but, you know, we'll, we'll patch it up. We'll patch it up. We, we will. We will, you know. Um, so that's just part of, you know, part of my recovery. And the things that, that I've had been able to, that's happened to me that I've been able to handle. You know, one of those promises tells me that we'll intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Trust me, if I'd been drunk during that period of time, I don't even want to tell you because I live on chaos. Now, I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I live on chaos, you know. The more chaotic it is, somehow it just seems like it gives me a purpose. You know, it just gives me a purpose. And I have to step back these days, and, you know, let the chaos go on without me. You know, I just have to stay out of it. And, and I'm still learning, you know. I'm a baby in this program. I have so far to go. I was 15 when I started drinking. I figure maybe... Mentally now or emotionally, I'm probably about 22 or 3, maybe, if we're lucky on a given day. Um, my recovery has, has been peaks and valleys. You know, I've had a lot of peaks, and I've had some really deep valleys. Really, really deep valleys. Uh, when I was about three and a half years sober, I decided to get married in sobriety. And a couple of years. It was a poor choice on my part. My husband and I moved to South Carolina, and and, uh, as the next couple of weeks go on, I'll get more into that because that is such a part of my recovery. And as we go through the steps, I'd rather talk about my recovery, you know, that part of my recovery. But I had this cat adopt me the second day I arrived in in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. I kept the cat, got rid of the husband. I got the best part of the deal. You know, I really did. But I will talk about that uh, because it was a very painful part of my life. A lot of sponsorship and a lot of fellowship and a lot of good stuff came out of that uh, it's getting near the hour i you know don't believe any souls are saved after the hour however it is impossible for me to close anytime i talk without reading my favorite piece and this is my favorite piece and you all have to bear with me because i usually cry but that's okay you know i'm allowed to do that today too uh, this is a wonderful thing that was sent to me a very dear, dear friend in um, Jonesboro, Tennessee. I call him Mr. A.A. of Tennessee. He is one of my dearest friends. And um, actually, I had another one, and I lost it in moving, and I had to call Tom and tell him that I'd I'd lost it. And and he said, well, honey, I will send you another. And I said, well, make sure you write a note, because, you know, the other one had a note this is where I lose, this is where I sometimes lose it, and it says, every time you read this, remember that an old country boy in Tennessee loves you, Tom C. and I know he does. So what I'd like you all to do is just close your eyes, sit back, relax, because we're going to go on a little trip, okay? Tucked away in our subconscious is an idyllic vision. We see ourselves on a long trip that spans the continent. We are traveling by train. Out the windows, we drink in the passing scene of children waiting at a crossing, of cattle grazing, of smoke pouring from a power plant, of rows of corn and wheat, of flatlands and valleys, of mountains, skylines, and village halls. But uppermost in our minds is the final destination. On a certain day, at a certain hour, we will pull it to the station. Once we get there, so many dreams will come true. How restlessly we pace the aisles, damning the minutes for loitering, waiting for the station. When we reach the station, that will be it, we cry, when I'm 18. When I put the last kid through college, when I get a promotion. When I reach the age of retirement, I shall live happily ever after. Sooner or later, we must realize there is no station, no one place to arrive. The true joy of life is the trip. The station is only a dream. It constantly outdistances us. It isn't the burdens of today that drive men mad. It is the regrets over yesterday and the fear of tomorrow. Regret and fear are twin thieves who rob us of today. So stop pacing the aisles and counting the miles. Instead, climb more mountains, eat more ice cream, go barefoot more often, Watch more sunsets, laugh more, cry less. Life must be lived as we go along. The station will come soon enough. And I know for this alcoholic that if I don't take my sobriety seriously, God will take it away. He'll give it to someone who will, and I can't afford that. Thank you.